I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So, yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. For a very long time, it's been true that as soon as Americans hear the word socialist, they stop thinking. Though most people just have an instant and highly negative association with the word, who knows what it really means? Some people actually associate Nazism with socialism because Hitler cleverly wove the word, which was then popular with Europe's working class, in with his extreme right-wing, violent, racist, Aryan nationalism. The reality is that the Nazis who openly embraced fascism routinely killed even suspected socialists. If Americans think of anything at all about the word, images of jackbooted Stalinist brutality uh, have been cultivated to be associated with the word socialist since at least the 50s. Now in the late 20 teens, with American politics having traveled exceptionally far afield from what Arthur Schlesinger in 1948 called the vital center, the word socialism is cavalierly tossed around and used as a derogatory accusation against anyone who is not part of what used to be recognized as the far-right-wing fringe, describing groups like the John Birch Society, but is now thoroughly normalized. Moderate and highly successful Republicans like Dwight Eisenhower would today be scornfully rejected by elected Republicans and tossed quickly into the socialist waste bin. But what about the word fascist? People on the currently acceptable right quickly leap to degrade anyone using that word to describe what's become the Republican Party. They have enjoyed some success at mocking as sky is falling chicken littles anyone who expresses a fear of fascism arriving in America. Like the word socialism, I suspect by design the word fascism may have lost some of the ugly taint it has so thoroughly earned over the decades. Who even knows what fascism is? Today's far right has been so clever as to actually convince many of its adherents that liberalism is fascism, that being politically correct is akin to fascism. Confusion is a friend of the currently powerful forces that have been frighteningly successful at pulling the wool over the eyes of the American public as they steadily install actual fascists in administrative and positions from school boards to judges and most notably into the White House itself. Now, some would say this is mere intentional and dishonest hyperbole, that Trump is successfully making America great again, and that we on the left can't stand that. 
They insist we are un-American because we dare to resist the duly elected president. They claim it is out of seriously exaggerated desperation that we dare to suggest Trump is a fascist. What a horrible thing to say about our president. There must be something wrong with us. As they have done in so many instances since the early 20th century, those who would suggest that the emperor has no clothes are the crazy and dangerous ones. Comforting fantasy is often so much easier to swallow than the dissonance of dreadfully uncomfortable reality. Some on the genuine far left have for decades too easily tossed around the word fascism to describe people they don't like in power. It's not a word to be used lightly in describing any person or movement. Even though Trump supporters insist they are the real patriots, their fascism is deeply anti-American. Erasing history is vital to those powerful forces who would destroy our democratic republic. And they have already achieved a tremendous amount toward their goals of transforming us from the America we have long treasured into an authoritarian, nationalist, plutocratic, and yes, fascist state. In his article in Counterpunch, author Anthony DiMaggio argues that in the context of intentional drift toward fascism, now appearing is what he calls full-on fascism. Trump makes the transition in his war on the press. Anthony DiMaggio is an assistant professor of political science at Leahy University. His uh, research uh, emphasizes U.S. politics as related to the news media, social movements, and inequality. He's author of six books, including Selling War, Selling Hope from 2015, and The Politics of Persuasion from 2017. Tony, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. It is a heavy lift. Your, your article starts off with the bang that Trump's reaction to the anonymous New York Times op-ed was a significant crossroads for his presidency. You write, Donald Trump's call for Jeff Sessions and the Department of Justice to investigate the New York Times for running an anonymous op-ed that embarrassed administration is a watershed moment. Please uh, tell us in what ways does it, as you say, display Trump's full shift from rhetorical to real-world fascist. Well, first I want to say thank you for, so much for having me on. Um, and I also want to say, with regard to your question, you know, you have this history with uh, President Trump of sort of what myself and others call creeping fascism in the sense that really he's been the rhetorical fascist president for quite some time now. Um, and I think the shift uh, has been pretty significant as of late because, you know, if you're looking at it historically, he's got, um, you know, these attacks on immigrants and people of color, this sort of adoration of dictators, which he has not been shy about expressing, um, this whole cult of personality surrounding Donald Trump, this idea that no matter what he is involved with in terms of bad press or criticisms or controversy, his uh, followers refuse to to abandon him. It really doesn't seem to impact them. So there is that cult of personality. There's his longstanding attacks on the media and on his critics, even celebrating violence against his critics, his reference to the alt-right as very fine people. Um, and I think most recently, you know, the, the incident with the Department of Justice is really significant in terms of suggesting a sort of shift from not simply a rhetorical fascism, but a full-on fascism in the sense that with the case of the Department of Justice, now the president actively calling on the Department of Justice to essentially criminalize the New York Times by mm -hmm. uh, referring to them as treasonous and talking about taking legal action against the New York Times and beginning an investigation of the New York Times because of this op-ed 
that they have printed from a member of the administration, reportedly. It essentially makes the administration look bad. So I think that's a significant sort of um, crossover point here. I'm not arguing in my piece that the United States government has fully right. shifted to a fascist system. I think that there's a creeping fascism going on there. Um, but the man himself of Donald Trump with this kind of uh, message when he calls on the Department of Justice to investigate and criminalize uh, the media. That does, I think, suggest a significant shift. And it does seem like he truly believes, if he understands even believing, that he is America, that l'état c'est moi. He's it, that uh, anything that criticizes him is is traitorous. And that's that that's certainly not traditional republicanism with the small r and and you write that after sending up countless trial balloons over the last year and a half this president has now crossed over from a state of aspirational fascism to full-blown fascism in what he's trying to do you're right the government is not there yet though historically the word fascism has had many forms and permutations before we go too far tony we must really stop and define what we mean by the word. How would you define the newly full-blown fascism on the part of uh, the president that our republic faces today? So I think if we're talking about people who are looking at academics, historians, intellectuals, people who are just interested in history in general, you know, there is a historical meaning of this term that is very different than some of the propaganda, uh, which you had briefly alluded to, this idea of, you know, liberal or socialist fascism. That's not what it meant historically. Historically, uh, we're talking about sort of the fusion of a number of key characteristics which have to do with right-wing politics, particularly this idea of extreme sort of belligerent nationalism, um, this idea of a nation that is embodied by a white ethno-state and involves attacks on people of color and immigrants, um, non-Christian peoples. Uh, also, a lot of this ends up getting tied into this idea of a cult of personality in the case right. of uh, President Trump, which has its roots, really, in uh, Italian fascism, going back to, to Mussolini, this idea within his rhetoric as well, that you, as a political leader, sort of become the nation and become the state. Right. And that really does relate to an idea of a cult of personality, because people uh, really base the identity of the nation and its worth on this, this one individual. Um, so, you know, we've got this idea of extreme nationalism tied into this cult of personality. Uh, and you've also got this idea of authoritarianism. That's really sort of key to a definition of fascism, I think. That, you know, you've got fundamental attacks on critics of an administration or regime, attacks on citizens in general who don't sort of toe the party line, attacks on the media, attacks on the entire system of law. And all of this uh, historically within a system that promotes corporate power and capitalism. So, you know, I think that this this term fascism has a very specific historical meaning, and increasingly as this presidency goes along, we're seeing more and more of these characteristics and him fitting this profile. Yeah, it does seem to be the case, certainly, and uh, cults of personality, it, it's, I've, I think it's quite a shame that we have that, uh, not just in the current administration, but confusing celebrity with leader of government it's it's a problem and it can often lead to cult of personality i mean people have had that about lots of other presidents before but they the presidents normally seem to work with government and recognize that they are in fact not the state that they are not the government how did it 
I mean, fascism was a real serious issue in the 20th century. It seemed like it was fairly well understood from uh, the 1930s through uh, the Second World War. We beat fascism in the Second World War. How, how is it that the word fascism is so pervasively not understood now in the 21st century? Well, I can say from following American political commentary for for decades now and uh, being a teacher for more than a decade um, and just being an American in general and following the political trends in this country that uh, it seems to be the case relative to other countries that uh, the United States culturally is, and in terms of the people, is quite ahistorical. So, you know, people don't understand much about a term like fascism to the extent that you would ask a person on the street, maybe they maybe they could tie it to, or the first thing that would come into their mind, they'd say, well, Hitler or the Holocaust. And the problem there is that, you know, it's obviously an appropriate context, but it's the most extreme case. So then people in this ahistorical mindset think, well, you know, anything... Anytime somebody compares something to Hitler or the Holocaust, then it's got to be an exaggeration. Well, you know, there are different forms historically of fascism, and they go outside of just Nazi Germany. <laughs> so, unfortunately, you know, especially this idea of creeping fascism, you know, the, the people don't sort of understand that point. You've got even quite a few intellectuals who've written about the alt-right recently, uh-huh. and they want to make this artificial distinction. They say, well, it's either a fascist or not, and they don't even... We understand this idea of gradations, that there could be this idea of creeping fascism. So we have problems even among the intellectuals with uh, an ahistorical understanding, a very parochial understanding of, of fascism. Well, that is, that is troubling. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is uh, author Anthony DiMaggio, who uh, writes in Counterpunch, an article called Full-On Fascism. Trump takes the tra- makes the transition in his war on the press, and you brought up the alt right. You know that's something that uh, uh, there was in the news a fair amount, oh, within the past year or so. But it sort of slipped from the news. But the alt right is sort of a 21st century sounding name for the far right. Would they? Is it appropriate? Who is the alt right? Are they basically like the old KKK and the John Birch Society? Are they something uh, different from that? Do, do you think the word? Would they embrace fascism, do you think? They're largely young I think people. so. I th- Go ahead. I think so. If you're talking about the um, protests in Charlottesville and the willingness to use violence in the name of a white ethno-state, I mean, the sort of nice way that this gets framed by members of what is called the alt-right is they will refer to themselves, people like Richard Spencer and others, as white nationalists. That's really putting a pretty face on it. Um, You know, I think a more blunt term and probably more accurate would be white supremacists. So if we're talking about uh, neo-Nazis or Klanners, they're all within the orbit of this idea of of white supremacy. And so this has been sort of part of the attempt to beautify fascism. And it's really part of this creeping fascist process that you've got for years now, and even going back decades, um, very far right-wing, what would be called alt-right now, but are really white supremacist ideas that have slowly over time been sort of smuggled into popular discourse by this president now, but also by Fox News, yeah. right-wing radio. Um, so this is sort of, I, I guess I would call it, you know, white supremacy 2.0. I mean, I think that's an accurate characterization of something that's really gone undergone sort of a PR transformation more than anything else. Now that That's a good point, because you had... Uh you know, there was the 20th, 20th century version of Jim Crow laws, which kept uh, black people 
in their place in the South didn't allow people, black people to vote. Now we have voter suppression, which is sort of an updated version of Jim Crow laws, in my opinion. Uh, and, you know, the term fascist is, uh, it can be a, a widely used word. And certainly Nazism is its very unique, very extreme form of fascism itself. Uh, and, you know, if, if people, it's easy for many people, I would think, to dismiss uh, being labeled fascist because they're not Nazis, because they haven't, you know, killed six million people. Uh, but there's, as you say, a, a large, well, there are a lot of similarities and, and there are strings that hold fascism together, but there are many, many different sorts of it. And another thing that sort of went along with the alt-right that we haven't heard much about lately, but there was something called Antifa. They were making a lot of noise, as was the alt-right, and Antifa, anti-fascist, would physically attack these white supremacists, uh, the Spencers and people like that. Of course, for some, especially young people, I think, young men, it may feel good to punch a bad guy. But strategically... I believe it plays perfectly into the hands of the real fascists. Is it a stretch, do you think, to think that perhaps these largely white teenage kids are being used by the fascists? Are they another sort of uh, uh, aspect of fascism, really? Antifa and fascists sort of playing off each other and, and somehow being connected? I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think, uh, unfortunately, what has been happening is you have a lot of I would say quite principled anti-fascist uh, youth who yes. um, are basically essentially being taken advantage of as treated sort of as a punching bag for the you know creeping fascist right, particularly under the Trump administration. You've got um, this whole an unmasking Antifa Act that has mm -hmm. been introduced in Congress, which seeks to introduce additional penalties for people who may be charged with uh, violence or felony charges because they wore a mask and because they identified as Antifa. You have Antifa being designated by U.S. intelligence agencies as a terrorist group. Mm. I mean, these are really stretches uh, of the, <laughs> these concepts and terms. Um, but the willingness to use violence in order to fight extremism uh, can play into oh, yeah. that fascist agenda as you're talking about. I think in terms of Antifa, from the research I've done, one interesting thing that they have managed to do is they have managed on a very general level focus a lot of attention on the rise of fascism uh, in the United States. So that is one thing that they have been able to do and a positive for them, but on the other hand, it really has not been successful as some sort of movement in terms of building uh, pressure an impetus for mass change. It's not a mass movement, and its very tactics sort of preclude it from becoming one, and it's been very easy for the Trump administration to demonize them. So I, sure. I understand the principles behind Antifa, and I think um, it's an important principle, but I think the tactics have been used by their critics against them, as you said. Yeah, it just feeds right into them. It says, see, the other guys are being violent. We're just doing our uh, American political thing, and, and these creeps in their masks are punching us. I would hope they would learn from this. I mean, I am exceedingly anti-fascist, of course, as an American, but uh, you got to be smart about it. And in, in fascism, I, I think by definition, the dictator himself, and I think it's always been a him, is above the law. Instead of a nation of laws, the ruler is the law. Please talk about the recent attack by the president on his own attorney general against the Department of Justice relative to 
criminal charges being filed against two members of Congress who happened to be early supporters of Trump. If you could refresh our memory on this recent story, then please tell us what may be fascistic about Trump's moves on these indictments. And, and he was... Con- sure. Go ahead. So there were these uh, two cases that recently the Justice Department had dealt with. There were these two Republican representatives. It was Chris Collins in New York and Duncan Hunter in California. And they basically they had charges brought against them for various financial transactions, things like insider trading, securities fraud, wire fraud, uh, false campaign reporting about campaign contributions, using slush fund money for personal expenses, all types of criminal behaviors if they end up being true. Um, they, of course, have their day in court. Yes. to defend themselves. Sure. But uh, the Trump administration, Trump particularly tweeted on this, and he said, you know, so good job, Jeff Sessions, of the Department of Justice, for bringing these charges, and it's such a bad thing, because we have an election coming up, and this is going to make us look bad. These were, as he said, quote, two easy wins. And another quote, he referred to them as popular officials. So this was pretty clear in terms of the implications. The idea was, we well, shouldn't have charged these people because they were popular. And these were easy wins. Uh, so why would they, these people be charged with anything? Because, um, you know, if they were charged and they were removed, of course you'd have to have a special election to replace them. But no, these were two easy wins. So the presumption here on the part of the Trump administration being um, that they shouldn't be charged because they're popular. So this, I think, feeds into the idea of um, aspirational fascism on his part and wanting to be an actual fascist in the sense that he's calling on. This isn't just, it is rhetoric, but, you know, it's rhetoric with an implication because he's calling on the Department of Justice and Jeff Sessions to have not taken action, that they shouldn't have done this, while at the same time he's calling on the New York Times to be uh, criminalized for treason. It really is an amazing point. For any normal American, conservative, liberal, whatever, the idea that if that there are people in politics who, because they're popular, cannot be prosecuted, and it's it, the law doesn't apply to them. It sounds, I mean, that's what Trump would like to feel himself, because certainly uh, Mueller seems to be uh, closing in, the walls are closing in, and it's relative to the law. And one of the things about the, uh, the Brett Kavanaugh situation is the suggestion that Kavanaugh feels that, well, a president can't be prosecuted. I'm not clear about that, but there's a concern about that. And is that an aspect of fascism that certain individuals are actually above the law and and they can't be charged with a crime because they're above the law? I'm guessing that, I mean, I think of the various people within uh, fascist administrations who have committed crimes, uh, what most people would consider crimes, that under the fascist uh, rule... No, they would be above the law. I think so. I mean, I think this is really important when you look back at historical parallels, particularly with Mussolini, because in his rhetoric and in his speeches, you know, he used to he would explicitly say, "If people want to call me a criminal, then then fine, so be it. You can call me a criminal, but you know, the nation is me. I am the nation." So huh. this idea of blatantly flaunting the law because you are above it, and this is something that this administration has shown on numerous occasions that they have aspirations of. And, I mean, uh, it's not just, I think, the Kavanaugh nomination. That's problematic enough. But um, the the president has said explicitly with regards to the emoluments clause, which says that presidents can't profit off of businesses that make money off foreign leaders and dignitaries. And I'm quoting him. 
he said, with regards to that idea that you would have a conflict of interest, like in his case, if you're the president, but you also own these hotels and you're making money off yes. foreign yes. leaders. He said, quote, I have no conflict situation here because I'm the president, because I'm the president. It's a nice thing to have. Um, so, you know, that's just one example. You also have the case of his lawyer recently saying that the president could not ever obstruct the law because he's responsible for upholding it. Um, you also have the travel ban, which was explicitly oh, yeah. advertised by his lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, as a Muslim ban. So you have uh, numerous instances here of a president flaunting the law, pretending to be above the law, thinking he's above the law. And, you know, of course, we can add to that the the recent New York Times case and a blatant sort of spitting in the face of the First Amendment with regards to this idea of treason. So Trump expected charges not to be brought against those two members of Congress. How, how could he actually, it seems like he was actually surprised at that, that his Department of Justice would do that. And did he give explanations? Just, I mean, he likes the people. Obviously, they supported him. Were there legal grounds that he cited, or is that just uh, above his pay grade, so to speak? <laughs> well, these things are usually sort of uh, either late night or early morning, uh, very yes. impulsive tweets. <laughs> so I don't know how much um, of a filter really goes into these things and how much thought goes into them. I think this is sort of the window into the impulsiveness uh-huh. of this president. He hasn't, uh, that I've ever seen, given coherent legal arguments yeah. Uh, when he makes these claims. So I think it's, you know, what you can sort of chalk it up to is this idea of hubris, that, you know, uh, this idea that he is America, that he can do what he wants. Hmm. Yes. Uh, uh, it's it's interesting to see uh, his level of, of understanding and how, you know, that in and of itself doesn't make him a fascist, but the fact that he doesn't, I mean, he truly, truly doesn't seem to understand that we are, in fact, a nation of laws and that that's part of our very identity as Americans. You write, quote, under a fascist regime, the law is seen as a tool for cementing the president and his party's control of the government. That's a very interesting line. Let me read it again. Under a fascist regime, the law is seen as a tool for cementing the president and his party's control of the government. Are there examples of this under the current uh, president? We mentioned those two uh, cases. Are there others? Well, I think, um, you know, some of the stuff I was just talking about in terms of the emoluments clause, definitely above the law. Yes. Um, this is really Nixonian in nature. You know, you can go back to uh, Richard Nixon, who had his own fascist tendencies, and, you know, he famously said in that interview, um, Oh, what was it? Uh, it was, I'm above, uh, when the president does it, it's not illegal. Right, right. <laughs> so this really relates definitely to that idea of um, Trump saying, well, I can't have a conflict of interest because I am the president. And I think it gets really interesting, uh, not just in terms of the emoluments clause stuff, uh, or with regards to um, the Muslim ban or some of the other things I've talked about, but with regards to this case in the New York Times, just to come back to it for a sure. minute. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, he argued that national security was at stake in terms of investigating the New York Times and taking action against them allegedly for treason and this person who's the author of this um, this op-ed. So I think it, that is particularly fascinating because I don't think anybody who takes a rational view of this can say that someone in an administration who was basically insubordinate, you know, that's what the op-ed op- talks about, how they don't always listen to what Trump wants and his right. dictates, um, 
they embarrassed him and they were insubordinate, really, that this now is a, because the New York Times published this and embarrassed them, that this is a national security issue. Those were the words that he used. So there's this idea that, you know, you use the law and this idea of treason, goes back to the Alien and Seditions Act. You would use those things for your own benefit to punish your political enemies by these, uh, forgive the pun, uh, you know, trumped-up charges mm-hmm. uh, in a complete contempt of First Amendment protections for freedom of the press. So I think that's a really blatant example of how you know, you can politicize the law and completely manipulate and pervert it in, in pursuit of a fascist goal. It does concern me uh, significantly, quite frankly, that... Uh, that there are a lot of people, Trump's rock-solid base, who think that doing what what the op-ed did and other things that uh, dare to criticize the president or resist the president are threats to national security. They don't seem to differentiate between the president's, uh, uh, you know, solid stance in the White House uh, and national security, that they, too... Are one and the same, and I, I find that very disturbing. That people, I'm not, you know, the Republicans have defunded education for the past forty years or so, and it seems like one of the uh, positive benefits of that for them is that people don't understand what the government is supposed to be in a Republican form of government. They truly don't, and I think that, you know, coming into that matrix, this uh, fascist wannabe. That's a really dangerous mix. Uh, and go ahead. You were about to say something. Sorry. I, I mean, I would agree. I, I think, you know, if, if we're, we're, talking, we're particularly talking about one segment of the population, though. I mean, yeah. you know, for a lot of Americans, the idea of education still has value, and they believe in the idea of evidence-based and empirical reasoning and <laughs> scientific method. But you have approximately, you know, 40% of the population now, based on these polls, yeah. who are basically with this president thick or thin. Um, and it polls pretty consistently across a lot of different areas, whether it's, um, you know, his handling of foreign affairs, issues like North Korea, immigration, trade, uh, you know, looking at specific polls for those individual areas, it's it's that solid 40%. So, you know, these particular individuals, you know, uh, someone criticizing him in the media for lying or this idea of alternative facts or um, dismissal of science, like these things aren't necessarily going to have an impact if these individuals already have contempt for evidence-based reasoning and for the media and for scientists. Oh, interesting. That, that It's been suggested that that education can look elitist, or if you're an intellectual, oh, you're an elitist, and that ignorance is as valuable as being educated. I do find that just a tad troubling, and that's very, very dangerous to our republic. I mean, our founders talked about how essential it was that citizens, in order to be citizens, need to be educated. And, and it, it's concerning that so many people don't, you know, think that education isn't necessarily valuable and they can buy alternative facts, as it were, and buy uh, having uncomfortable stories called fake news, which I believe that term actually, you you would know the answer to this, uh, comes from Mussolini, that whenever there was a, a news that he didn't like, he called it fake news. Maybe it came from somewhere else. I don't know. But certainly Trump has openly admired totalitarian and authoritarian dictators like his buddy Putin, Kim Jong-un, Duterte of the Philippines, and others. And he heaps scorn on our traditional allies like Canada and the European Union, 
I've been surprised at the lack of outcry among Americans in the population over such statements. Is it that people have been successfully programmed to ignore or no longer care about foreign relations? I mean, we're making wars all over the place, and that doesn't seem to uh, register at all. How, how is it that people can not be upset by this, that, that we're scorning you know, our, our traditional allies, Canada, Britain, the European Union? Talk about how that may have, have come about, that he can get away with that stuff of, of admiring dictators. Well, it's a it's a good uh, point to bring up. I would I would say first uh, regarding the the earlier point you made, um, I have seen some uh, of the commentary. If you go back to Mussolini's rhetoric and speeches, you know that you know, basically he would say anyone who was critical of him, uh, he would accuse, and particularly the press uh, abroad and at home, of, of just lying anytime they were critical of him. So this idea of um, the press as an enemy. Um, as creating fake news, you know whether or not the exact words "fake news" were used by Mussolini. You know that concept is the same, I think. Yeah. Um, and in terms of the the last point you made about you know how people can sort of not care about these issues, I mean part of that has to do with the idea of the the cult of Trump and and people sort mm-hmm. of falling in line behind his personality and um, falling into that. But also uh, that's made possible because you have a nation of people, generally speaking, and I'm, again, speaking in yeah. broad strokes here, who are heavily insulated. Uh, it's a quite parochial nation culturally. Yes. We're insulated not just geographically by two oceans, but uh, but also culturally and in terms of the media, um, and separated by language from, from other countries, in a country where um, Americans haven't historically valued understanding or learning a second language. Um, and so basically you have a situation where Americans... Uh, today and particularly post 9/11, after the disastrous war in Iraq, they have a general sense of how they feel about the world, and it oftentimes comes off as quite isolationist in the sense that um, they they aren't really paying attention to what's happening in the rest of the world. It doesn't get a lot of coverage. I have seen really over the last 10 to 15 years a significant decline just reading the news, reading newspapers, and how much foreign uh, coverage there is. And you know, as long as we don't have boots on the ground in some major conflict somewhere. Americans seem to be content enough in that parochialism and ignorance. So I think that that kind of situation is how you can um, you can have what's going on today where you have a president who can traffic in uh, such blatant stereotypes that are so inaccurate about immigrants as carrying diseases and as rapists and drug dealers and, and really uh, berate what for for so many years been U.S. allies um, and get away with these things because, you know, because of this sort of parochial culture. Yeah, parochial culture for sure. And uh, it it does seem like my sense of the word fascism is that there always has to be the other, the bad guys, the other who's not us. And certainly the immigrants are the other, just as uh, Jews were and, uh, you know, uh, gypsies and other people uh, under the uh, extreme Nazi government, there's always the other. And there just has to be that that we can't be responsible. They are. It's out there. What about the slogan, America first? Talk about parochialism. We heard that in the 1930s, too. What, What did it mean then and what about now? Is it basically the same sentiment, do you think? And how how dangerous is that? And it seems like a lot of people like the sound of America first. 
I think it's become one of the popular catchphrases of this administration. It does have a history, as you've mentioned. Um, this goes back to the run-up immediately before World War II and U.S. involvement in World War II of what was called the America First Committee, um, which basically was an isolationist group. You know, it was a mix of different political, sort of economic notables. There were conservative isolationists and that what some people might call paleoconservatives today in their thinking because it's obviously different than the, the Bush administration's sort of neoconservative imperialism. Um, and basically, so, you know, these, these people were critical of the FDR administration, Franklin Roosevelt. They didn't want the U.S. to be involved in World War II. Right. This ended up getting tied directly to anti-Semitism because you had people who were part of this organization in leadership positions, like Henry Ford, who was a noted anti-Semite. Um, other people like the famous pilot and veteran Charles Lindbergh, mm-hmm. um, who basically was a supporter of what um, the German Nazi Party was doing in Ger- uh, against the Jews, excuse me. And um, so, you know, obviously history doesn't completely re- repeat itself. You know, right. the saying is that history rhymes. So there is a rhyme here in the sense that, you know, this sort of isolationist, xenophobic uh, idea that was popularized um, prior to World War II, you know, is it's always been there. And uh-huh. it's made a comeback in recent years with the rise of the Trump administration. Well, certainly it seems like that with, with, with racism. I naively thought that electing the first black president might actually be a blow against racism. How wrong I was. It seems like, you know, it's been there all along, but it's like the, the cover on the sewer has blown off and people can be openly racist now under Trump. And you're right, it's, it's been there for a while, this, uh, you know, we we are number one, America first, USA, USA. It's been there for a long time. In fact, the very idea of American exceptionalism seems to be part of that, and that's been pretty widespread, even among Democrats, I will say. And uh, Thomas Jefferson, obviously a great American founder, his passion for democracy was never in doubt. He He famously said in a letter to a friend, were it left to me, this is Thomas Jefferson, were it left to me to decide whether we should have a government without newspapers or newspapers without a government, I should not hesitate a moment to prefer the latter. But I should mean that every, uh, that every man should receive those papers and be capable of reading them. <laughs> Our liberty cannot be guarded but by the freedom of the press, nor that be limited without danger of losing it. And he said, so... Uh, it's hard to tell if if it's simply Trump's famous juvenility and impulsiveness or how calculated it is to refer to the press as the enemy. And I think Jefferson hit it hit it right on the head there that people have to be able to read, able to understand it, and that if there's limitations on freedom of the press, and I've heard people and you've probably heard people say, Oh, but the press is so irresponsible you know, that, that something has to be done about the press. I've heard this, and it's surprised me. It, it, it does seem a lot of people actually believe that all reporters in the mainstream media conspire each and every day and somehow make up and agree on the very same stories. They actually believe that. I mean, it's, it's clearly impossible. Distrust of the media, it, see, it's very widespread now, but it strikes me as something pretty new. How well is this working? How dangerous to our traditional freedoms is it? Is this narrative of, you know, the lying media 
still gaining steam, do you think? What's your sense of where it is on the charts? Well, we've got, uh, as a social scientist, you know, this is sort of something I've looked into pretty closely, and um, I would say this much, you know, there's sort of two points here. One is the historical point, and one is the contemporary one. The historical point is that, you know, this is a somewhat new phenomenon, but it also is something that's been sort of picking up steam for the last three decades. So, you know, if you look at some of the Pew Research Center data going back to the 1980s, you know, you might have had between a third to half of people saying oftentimes news stories are inaccurate or favor one side over another or are biased. And those numbers have have grown to a majority, to two-thirds to three-quarters of people by the 2010s. Mm-hmm. Um, so this idea of a distrust of the media, I think you can tie a lot of this back to the rise of right-wing rhetoric, particularly in talk radio before the rise of Trump. Uh-huh. This idea of trying to convince people that there is a liberal bias in the media and then people won't, won't trust the news. And what we've seen now in modern times is that this has manifested itself with a number of different surveys regarding Trump to the point where half of Republicans say that they trust Trump and his Twitter feed more than the media, including Fox News, of all places, that they trust him more uh, to get their information than even Fox News, let alone CNN or Mm. or Times. Um, Half of Republicans are saying we should shut down media outlets if they publish information that is biased or inaccurate, and half of them agree, half of Republicans, that the media are the enemy of the people. Um, So these things are very real. Uh, We've seen even in the last year, just 2017 to 2018, there was a political poll done. They found that the number of Republicans who thought the media tell the truth had gone down from 11% to 7%. It was already low, but it went even lower. And the number who said Trump, well, on the other hand, he, he's the guy who he tells the truth. You know, that went from 65% in 2017 to 71%. Mm. So I bring up these numbers because I think they're important. They give you an actual metric, an actual benchmark for not only concluding that, you know, uh, this is very real, this distrust, but that it's been growing. It, it's I hadn't heard those numbers. That's really, quite frankly, shocking to me that uh, people would have that much distrust for the media. And the whole idea of the liberal press, I mean, there's been the nation uh, and the progressive for many years, but I'd never seen the media, in the mainstream media, as being particularly liberal. It, and, and for people to doubt that, I, that that's a real uh, threat to democracy. And, and Thomas Jefferson would certainly be extremely uh, disturbed by this and, and worried about its effect on the status of our democracy itself for people to not believe the media and to believe the uh, the mouthpiece of the government as being the one who tells the truth when, uh, you know, any kind of test shows that Trump lies many times a day. And what's, I mean, people got all upset. I remember when Nixon lied, I remember uh, watching Nixon and, and w- with the crowd and people saying, he's lying, he's lying. And that got him in a lot of trouble. People were upset that the president and his spokespeople were lying all the time. Now it doesn't seem to matter. People don't care that the president lies. It's easier. It's more comforting to uh, believe the simplistic garbage (laughs) that the president and his spokespeople put out there. People don't seem to care that it's lies. And, And as you acknowledge, corporate media does practice propaganda. I mean, their mission... They're capitalist enterprises. Their mission is to make money, always has been. They do that by making sure that advertisers are believe that there are a lot of people paying attention to that media. That's 
one significant way Trump won his nomination, having him on TV a lot, he was very, very entertaining. He sold ads well. The advertisers liked it. And the media, this allegedly liberal media, put Trump out there a lot because he was so entertaining and people paid attention and the advertisers were happy about that. But this is quite different from a press under the thumb of any government and is thereby far less a threat, I would think. Since our founding, the media has profited from being inflammatory. Let's face it, they do that. It sells papers. Isn't that dangerous and doesn't that need to be clamped down? Your response to that, Tony? I think so. I think, um, you know, we live in the era of media tabloids and celebrity gossip and celebrity glamour and um, sort of worshipping celebrities. And, you know, obviously this is part of a consumer culture based in advertising and entertainment. Uh, I do think that all of these things are issues in the sense that, you know, it really has cheapened uh, political discourse, you know, and this is not something that's really new in the sense that, uh, you can go back to the writings of Neil Postman and his famous book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, and he talks about the idea of with the rise of television and r- the rise of entertainment um, and entertainment being sort of worked into the news, that this would have a superficial impact on, on discourse. I would personally say that, you know, I think the way to hold these media accountable for what they've done to American discourse is uh, that we need to have a push among Americans, some sort of movement, really, for a genuine nonprofit public media system where journalists can feel like they can produce uh, the news and information as a public good, and that they don't have to just rely on official sources most of the time, as they they typically do, and as studies have shown. Um, So, and I'm not talking about, you know, this sort of crappy version like PBS and um, NPR, where basically, you know, they're running ads because they're constantly soliciting funds and advertising foundations that are giving them money. I mean, like a genuine nonprofit taxpayer-based media system that is insulated from from government censorship through the protections of the First Amendment. Um, So I think that we need that if we want to have some serious discourse. And, And if done well, could be very effective. I mean, you know, other countries have those kinds of systems, even if they're far from perfect. I've been a part of um, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation in terms of uh, participating in different documentaries, and, um, you know, and I followed other countries' uh, media, particularly for talking about uh, the BBC. And, you know, these are considered very lively, sort of dynamic energetic media systems that are quite popular. So, you know, it's not the case that these things can't succeed if the money's put into them and the quality is, and then time and effort is put into it. Yes, uh, it, it, it's a complicated thing, but that's the way it's supposed to be. Now, I was surprised to read in your article on, uh, on Counterpunch that Glenn Greenwald of Edward Snowden fame expressed concern about the so-called resistance in the White House, that they are an unelected cabal and covertly impose their own ideology, sort of a covert coup d'etat, an assault on civilian political rule. That's not a pretty picture either. Uh, This this group in the White House that resisted, that, that, uh, you know, one of whom supposedly put out the uh, the op-ed in the New York Times, are they too not a threat to democracy? What do you think about what Glenn Greenwald was saying? I, I found it a bit surprising, but maybe he's got something there. Well, I, I'm a, I think I you know have a lot of respect historically for what he's done in terms of his commitment to investigative journalism, and in particular with regards to exposing the NSA. Um, 
and the wiretapping, illegal wiretapping and spying under the Obama administration. That was incredibly important. I do think in this particular case that his comment is off base in the sense that uh, you know he's talking about an unelected cabal of people, sort of this almost you know deep state type rhetoric, which he has used before. Uh-huh. And I don't think that really applies in the case of the person who wrote this op-ed because you know this is someone who claims to be one of his appointees within his administration. It's not somebody buried deep down in one of these bureaucratic agencies or intelligence services. I think that the the real important point here is that you know we need to ask this question uh, which one is a bigger threat uh, an administration where this president has tried to go full on fascist um so is it that administration that is the primary threat or is it bickering and infighting sort of intra uh intra administration conflict mm-hmm. uh, within a fascist or wannabe fascist administration so for me <laughs> i think the answer is pretty obvious that the, the threat is the administration itself and what about this whole notion of deep state? I have found it rather amusing that people actually believe that, but it's it certainly is a convenient tool for the uh, people within the Trump administration to to point the finger at something called the deep state. W- your thoughts about that? I think the problem with that terminology is that it gets thrown around so much that to the point where nobody really knows what that exactly means. It's been used on the far right, on Fox News, by Sean Hannity and by the president, basically, to refer to anyone that they don't like who's not a conservative or far right reactionary. So they include within it, like, the media and Democrats and anyone who criticizes them. On the the other hand, you have people who say that they are on the left, um, and I'm sure, you know, I don't doubt their sincerity. They are. Um, They try to use this terminology. Um, But the problem is, you know, what does it even mean? You know, you've got so many different Mm. types of people using this terminology that uh, it's not exactly clear what it is. I think that, you know, I would prefer some clearer language. If if we're talking about a sort of military state or a police state, we should be talking about that. We could be talking about a military-industrial complex. Um, it, you know, increasingly local police have become very militarized yes. in the way that they police communities. Yes. These terms mean something. Military-industrial complex means that you have, you know, corporations that lobby government to get contracts to feed a military system of imperialism and expansionism. And so these things have very clear meanings, whereas with deep state, it really isn't entirely clear. It was originally conceptualized to me- refer to a lot of you know developing world countries, whether they're talking about Syria or elsewhere, um, where they used sort of torture, and there was this um, administrative apparatus that was really authoritarian. And I think that it really sort of became a concept stretch when you try to apply that to professional bureaucrats in the United mm. States, um, because we don't have that same kind of system. I mean, it is the case if you're an American who is a person of color that you do have to worry about being repressed and with police brutality and racial profiling. But, you know, the average American, uh, we're criticizing the president right now. I'm not worried about getting picked up by the FBI later today and tortured. So right. we do have to be really careful to be sensitive to the actual repression that goes on within um what's called the deep state and, and actual dictatorships and what's going on in the United States, which is not that. Certainly, and it seems like uh, the term the deep state is it's a diversion. It's to confuse people and say, oh, they're the, the bad guy. They're the, the other one. And it's, it's very confusing on purpose. Uh, and certainly there is a difference between where we are now and, and a police state, a military government, uh, where we are nowhere near there yet. A police state is incredibly frightening and obviously the Nazis became that and and Mussolini became that 
Uh, it seems to be the situation in the Philippines uh, and Soviet, uh, no, Soviet, in Russia under Putin these days, the KBG, you know, head running uh, uh, Russia. Those are police states. We're not there by any stretch of the imagination yet. And perhaps more disturbing than the president himself is the Republicans in Congress. Now, I had the opportunity to serve with many genuinely conservative Republicans when I was in the New Hampshire State Senate. I've known and been friends with many very decent Republicans in the House and in the U.S. Senate. There have been some great people there, Republicans. You write that members of Congress, Democrat and Republican alike, must step forward to impede Trump's authoritarianism. They're not doing that. I I know it took a a long time for Republicans in Congress to stand up to Nixon under Watergate. We would like to think it happened quickly, but it didn't. What is it going to take, do you think, to shake them loose from the president's grip? I find this terribly disturbing that they might actually be accepting of Trump's fascism. What's it going to take for to shake loose the Republicans in Congress? It's very disturbing. Well, I think it's a good point and a good question. Um, you know, obviously they haven't shown either party sort of the moral commitment or spine to to stand up to this aspirational fascism, attempted actual fascism. Um, when you have the Department of Justice and the Attorney General as the only people standing between you, the President, and fascist policies, we obviously have a problem that, yeah. uh, a situation that's very precarious. So I think, realistically, you know, if we're talking about the most positive outcomes here, uh, what could happen is if there's actual punishments and then incentives for a particular Republican Party, in this case, to cooperate with Democrats on investigating him, actually having a congressional investigation about his finances and other activities, I think that realistically that's only going to happen if you have the Republican Party um, being seeing some dramatic losses in the 2018 midterm election. Uh, so if the public point. comes out and they punish this party, and the party realizes that public sentiment is turning against this president, or that at least that there's a lot of people who are willing to come out and vote uh, and punish this president for what he's been doing, then there may be an incentive pre-2020 um, for Republicans and Democrats to come together and actually this idea of stopping that bleeding, stopping the hemorrhaging, yeah. um, that, you know, in conjunction, in, in sort of a confluence of factors here, that it wouldn't just be these electoral punishments and motivations, but, you know, you do have this Mueller investigation that's plugging along. Um, this idea of whether Trump obstructed justice in the investigation itself, whether he had colluded uh, with Russian interests in terms of trying to manipulate 2016 election, we know that's certainly the case with his son, yeah. uh, who was trying to get information and dirt on Hillary Clinton from Russian uh, sources. So, you know, you have these two things going on. You have this Mueller investigation, and you have um, this election coming up. Uh, if these things come together to punish the Republican Party, then there may be prospects to uh, remove this president and limit his power. Um, and shaking. But, you know, we'll have to see uh, yeah. for sure what's going to happen. We will indeed. And, uh you know, I, I wonder about, okay, what happens if Trump gets away with it? He Obviously, he and, uh, and his uh, uh, former mayor of New York uh, are projecting that they're going to get away with it. How dangerous is that, that if somehow Mueller presents his charges and he walks away with it? Is that, I mean, is, that strikes me as particularly frightening. W- what are your thoughts about that and how that might affect, you know, the advance of fascism? 
Well, I think ultimately, you know, it raises interesting questions about sort of how you punish a president, you know, especially if they think they're above the law, because who is it that's going to punish him? It, um, is it the Department of Justice that would take action against him? Would it be a state attorney general if he had violated uh, state laws with regards to the election? Would it be Congress? And in terms of impeachment, um, there's just so many sort of questions here, and and this is sort of uncharted territory, maybe not entirely mm-hmm. uncharted, because you do have the Nixon administration, and he was going to be um, yes. removed from office based on Watergate, but uh, it's just so hard to know for sure because it's such a it's such an unprecedented situation. So um, I don't know for sure exactly. I mean, I guess that's the yeah. <laughs> that's the interesting part. Well, so far at least, there's still more of us traditional American Republican with a small R than there are of the people who would you know agree to fascism. I don't know. I, I think you're right. The 2018 election is big, and, and that will perhaps free up some Republicans to start distancing themselves if they see that perhaps it could cost them electorally. They are they tend to be somewhat self-serving, shall we say. <laughs> well, it's been fascinating talking with you. The, the situation will go on. I'd, I'd urge people to uh, read Counterpunch if they can get a hold of that. I don't know if you uh, publish elsewhere that uh, people may be interested in following your work. Uh, usually Counterpunch and uh, Truth Out Magazine. Those are the ah, yes. two places most prominently. All right. Well, thank you so much. And uh, Thanks for having me on. We'll see if we can avoid fascism. And let me know if you recognize this music, what it's from. The sun on the Thanks for listening. The stag in the forest runs free. But gather together to greet the storm Tomorrow belongs to me The branch of the linden is leafy and green The rind gives its gold to the sea but somewhere a glory of its unseen Tomorrow belongs to me